brought your Bibles with you tonight, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is a, a different kind of chapter in Scripture. and One of the hardest things for us as Christians to do is to be content with the lives that we have, the lives that we're living today. Paul is now going to start addressing the questions or concerns the Corinthians have written and asked him about, which brings us into chapter 7 tonight. God granted the Apostle Paul to give instruction to his people for how they ought to live as a gift of the wisdom of God over against the wisdom of men. He wanted us to get our truth for this life from his truth in all things, not from ourselves and not from the world. The centerpiece of this section comes in verses 17 to 24 where Paul declares that a person should lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. He says that in the immediate context of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, which is what we'll focus on as we move through the text itself. But Paul's statement, even in that context, gives us hope and direction for our lives as a whole, no matter what station we're in, which we'll be able, hopefully, to focus on once we've moved through the passage. We glorify God when we faithfully live the lives we have today in hope and for His glory. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word. It is perfect. It is infallible and inerrant and inspired and authoritative for us. O God, may we hear Your Word as the Word of life that gives life here and for eternity. God, teach us what it means to be Your disciple, to follow the path that You have laid. Lord, would you please help me preach clearly, help me make this text plain for us. I need your grace and your power and your spirit for this. I cannot do that. And Lord, I ask that you would soften the heart of everyone that has come, that we would all be able to hear your word as it's given to us. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, a good... Um, test verse for how difficult it can be sometimes to translate the Bible is found here in this verse, in verse 1. By the way, when you realize you think this is 40 verses, don't get alarmed when we spend so much time on verse 1, okay? We won't take that much time with the rest of the text at all. It's just uh, verse 1 kind of sets up the how and the what of this passage for us, so we'll park here for a little bit. In the ESV, which is what I read from, uh, it looks fairly straightforward. The Corinthians have obviously written to Paul saying, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But there are several ways actually to translate the statement that's in the original Greek. Even uh, some uh, translations have it as a question that they're asking. Um, but the basic premise is that, without getting into all of that and all the different meanings of that, that the Corinthians are either asking Paul this, is this true? Or they're telling him that they have come to this conclusion and they want to know what he thinks about it. His response is what comes in the following verses. His response to this is what kind of drives the theme of this whole chapter. And ultimately, for the sake of preaching and hearing, we're less interested in their confusion than we are in Paul's clarity, which is what follows verse 1. And lets us know explicitly that Paul is moving from addressing the issues Chloe's people had written to him about. We found that out back in chapter 1, verse 11, to answering the questions the Corinthians themselves had written to Paul as a church 
and asked him about. So that's where we are now. So we'll see him quote what they wrote very often. He's done that a little bit. But now he'll really switch to this and then respond to it, usually as a matter of correction. One of the great challenges facing the contemporary church, half a century, uh, well, well more than, uh, you know, the so-called sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s, uh, is, is how to speak and think about the issue of sex. Um, Christianity has an incomparably high view of sex within marriage. We see that from Genesis onwards and even poetically in the Song of Songs in Scripture. But Scripture also has, we don't think about this as much, an incomparably high view of celibate singleness as reflected in the life of Jesus himself and many others, including, as we're about to find out, the Apostle Paul. The question is, for us, how do we as Christians faithfully champion singleness in a culture where it's increasingly looked down upon without being ascetic, anti-sex, or anti-marriage? And how do we champion sex within marriage in a culture where that is increasingly under attack from all sides without disparaging singleness? How do we hold the balance here. Walking that tightrope is made more complicated by the fact that the church is always communicating to two different audiences, the church and the world. Outside the church, the Christian insistence on sex within marriage for reasons that we considered in the previous chapter is regarded as maybe quaint at best and actively harmful at worst to say sex is reserved for a man and a woman in uh, the confines of of uh, marriage to, to the world that's becoming increasingly uh, horrible and arcane or archaic and absurd. Um, so when we're communicating to society as a whole, we want to make sure we prize and explain our high view of sexual intimacy within marriage. But inside the church, as one commentator writes, the challenge is often the reverse. There is often an obsession with marriage in which the nuclear family is normalized Married life is idolized, and single people are marginalized. So, uh, when we're talking to the family of God, then, when we're talking to Christians, we want to insist on the goodness of the single life as well, and the crucial reality that we're not made complete in marriage, we're not made complete uh, or, or in sexual fulfillment. We, single or married, are made complete in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is arguing for here. Addressing the first problem risks making the second problem worse and vice versa. How can we handle the subject wisely, beloved, in Scripture by learning from Paul, specifically from this chapter? In the providence of God, not only was our Savior unmarried, and we could probably do with reflecting sometimes on the virginity of Jesus as much as we do the virginity of Mary, but so was the apostle to the Gentiles, single. That is a gift to all of us. The person responsible for writing the vast majority of what the New Testament teaches about sex and marriage was single himself. And the same is true for many of the church's greatest teachers on the subject over time. So Paul's teaching then, the point is, can't be dismissed as self-interested or unrealistic. Paul, like Jesus, walked the walk on this one. Paul begins his response to the Corinthians quotation by affirming the goodness of sex within marriage. Now, in Corinth in particular, this is interesting because it would have been tempting for Paul when faced with all the sort of sexual nonsense that was going on in Corinth to try to ban sex altogether. You guys can't handle it. Just, you know what, don't anybody do it. Just forget it, right? That would have been very tempting. 
Paul does the opposite. And there have been religious sects all throughout the past that have um, tried to do that. So you have to ban it. You can't do that. You know, uh, monks and these types of things. And so um, Paul, however, does the opposite. The best defense against sexual immorality, he says, is for all married people to have sexual relations with their husbands or wives. We pick it up in verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. A married person has a marital duty in this regard to their spouse. Verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. An obligation in a marriage to serve one another with their bodies. Okay, He goes further. Married couples should not deprive themselves of sexual intimacy and if they do, they should only do so for a short while so that they can pray and then quickly come back together so that they won't be tempted. Look at verse 5. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This is a remarkably um, sex-positive paragraph, and Paul, as always, has a theological rationale for it. That's actually in Scripture. Go back up to verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, this statement would probably have gone on very well with the men in the church and with most men in the ancient world as well as plenty in the modern one, that when a woman gets married, she yields authority over her body to her husband. But the next line is a game changer in the ancient world. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Greek men certainly did not believe that their wives had authority over their bodies. It would have sounded absurd to them for Paul to say this, but Paul is adamant. Marriage and rights in marriage are not one-sided. It requires just as much self-yielding from a man as it requires from a woman. Sexual relations like marriage as a whole only work properly when both partners yield to the other, preferring the other to themselves and looking to serve them in any way that they can. Paul says that sex within marriage is good. Isn't it funny that there's a whole chapter in Scripture devoted to this, right? This is important. Paul says sex within marriage is good, and husbands and wives should enjoy it frequently. They should give themselves up to each other, and they shouldn't abstain except for a very short time. But then comes the kicker, all right, in verse 6. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. All of a sudden here, and without warning, Paul has gone from extolling the value of sex within marriage to putting it firmly in its place, because it's not everything. I am conceding all this rather than commanding it, he says. If I had my way, everyone would be single like me. Right, so that's, that's amazing to read in Scripture, because we think that, that being in a marriage is like the goal of life, and you can't be whole until you find the person that completes you and your soulmate. And Paul says, ah, no. No, if I had my way, everybody would be single like me. But to be fair, he says, we all have different gifts. You have yours, and I have mine. Right? So in that context, singleness is a gift. And maybe if you're, uh, if, if you were single and hoping to get married, you would say, I don't really want this gift. I'd like a different gift of a spouse. But that's what Paul says. 
this comment is so countercultural, both then and now, that it really stops us in our tracks. How, how could you value singleness over marriage? What can be better than marriage? Paul seems to be saying that he thinks the single life is preferable to the married one. And again, we don't talk like that. We don't talk like that at all. Although he's happy to admit, we all have different gifts, so they can both be good things, marriage and singleness. But that's the biblical way to talk about it. It'd be better if everybody was single. That's amazing. In this sense, right? There'd be no humanity if everybody was single, but we need to hear Paul out here. It's an astonishing thing to say, and it'll be spelled out at more length, and in fact reinforced later in verses 8 and 9 and 25 to 38. For now, it's worth noticing the nuance and wisdom with which Paul handles the challenge we mentioned earlier. How do we walk the tightrope of affirming the goodness of sex within marriage, yet at the same time affirm the goodness of the celibate single life? How do you do that? Like this. Paul has just dropped a bit of a bombshell, so he explains... Uh, quickly, what he thinks that means for those who are not married. Verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So if we were wondering whether Paul's previous comment was a little bit whimsical, he was just saying it, it's not a genuine conviction about the goodness of the unmarried life, this sets us straight. He really meant it. Remaining unmarried, whether we've never been married or whether our spouse has died, uh, is kalos, the word is good, right, beautiful. That's what Paul has done. And it's what he recommends for single people everywhere. If we struggle to recommend a single life and affirm it as good, right, and beautiful, then we need to stop and reflect on why. Why do I disagree with Paul on that statement? And what does Paul know that I don't, that we don't, right? He will help us on this later in the chapter. We'll get into 25 to 38. This verse raises the question of whether Paul was ever married. Was he always single? Did he... Did his wife die? Did his wife leave him? Uh, maybe because he became a Christian. We'll never know for sure. But it seems like he had always been single. Because if Paul had experienced bereavement or abandonment or something, you might expect him to have mentioned it uh, when addressing those specific situations in this chapter, in verses 12 through 16 and 39 to 40. In the present context, though, it doesn't really matter. The point is that he regards his own experience of being unmarried as an example for people to imitate rather than a curse for people to escape. Right? Verse 9. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. I knew I had a friend in college that said she was going to make that the verse on the napkins at the reception. I always thought that was hilarious. It is better to marry than to burn with passion. That would be funny to see. Marriage might not be his preference, Paul says, but it's far better than remaining single and being consumed with sexual passion, leading to a lack of self-control and sexual immorality. Now, once again, the pastoral wisdom, the nuance with which Paul handles the various possibilities, this is exemplary for us. This is how we should talk. This is how we should think through things. And now he shifts focus from sex within marriage to the always sticky subject of divorce and remarriage. The teaching of the Lord Jesus, let me, let me back up for a minute and emphasize that difference. The teaching of the Lord Jesus, beloved, is and should be the most important teaching we have anywhere on any subject. Paul is very aware of which situations Jesus addressed during his earthly ministry. Not I, but the Lord, he writes in verse 10, for example. And which situations he didn't address. I, not the Lord. 
later in verse 12. If we have a word from Jesus on any subject, that settles the discussion. Period. But what? But that does not mean when he hasn't addressed something, we're left guessing what to believe. Paul was commissioned by the risen Christ. He was given the Spirit of God. He'll say that in verse 40, which enabled him to teach with authority into the wide range of situations which Jesus did not comment on directly. In this case, the sticky pastoral questions about divorce and remarriage. The teaching of Jesus is clear. Paul says in verse 10, To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. That's the teaching of Jesus. Jesus was uncompromising in his teaching on divorce and remarriage in a way that makes many of us uncomfortable. Right? Matthew 5, 31 to 32, 19, 3 to 12, Mark 10, 2 through 12, Luke 16, 18. Jesus was extremely clear. And this is Paul's summary of that teaching in 10 and 11. Disciples who are married should not separate. If they do, they should not get divorced, but either remain separated or be reconciled to each other. Jesus makes an exception in the case of those who are the victims of sexual immorality, like if you've been cheated on. What is, what is best spiritually is if one can forgive and move on, but usually that's not the case, and a person shouldn't be made to feel guilty. If they're like, listen, I can't stay with this person. They cheated on me, Right? So Jesus makes an exception in the case of those who are the victims of sexual immorality. But otherwise, this is a pretty emphatic no to divorce and remarriage. But Jesus said nothing about disciples whose spouses are unbelievers. So you have a Christian person married to an unbeliever. Jesus didn't address that. And so the question in Corinth that Paul is addressing is, or, or, or bringing up here in light of all this is, should they, coupled like that, stay married as well? What if the unbelieving partner doesn't want to stay with a Christian person and simply abandons the marriage? What should the Christian spouse do in that case? Paul, aware that Jesus didn't address this situation, but that some Corinthian believers are apparently encountering it, gives his very considered response to that question. He takes the two scenarios in turn. Right? First, if the unbelieving partner wants to remain unmarried, then that's what the believing spouse should do whether they are their husband or their wife. Look at 12 and 13. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So, now notice once again, Paul extends privileges and responsibilities to women that usually in culture back then would have only belonged to men. You just didn't talk like this. Christians did. Christians did. That's a Christian way of thinking, actually, that men and women are totally equal in this regard. The world will mess with that all the time. Being married to a believer apparently has a sanctifying effect on a person. It's not worthless. On the home and on any children they might have. Look at verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. You spend a whole sermon on that verse. But when an unbeliever is married to a believer, it's not all negative, Paul is saying. It exposes that unbelieving spouse to holiness, to the truth of the gospel in ways that would not be true if the Christian 
separated from their spouse. Paul is not saying that people are automatically saved by being married to or parented by a Christian. He says we have no way of knowing that, right? Verse 16. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? But he seems to believe that it makes the unbelieving spouse's salvation far more likely in the end and their life far more holy in the meantime, to be in proximity to a Christian. Second, look at verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So, first glance, that seems simple enough, and I, I think it is. If you're married to an unbeliever and they want to separate, you should let them go rather than trying to enforce the marriage. Why? Because God wants you to have peace. But then the question immediately arises, can such a person, a Christian whose unbelieving spouse has left them, are they free to get married again to someone else? It all comes down to the meaning of the phrase not enslaved in verse 15, or maybe not bound if you're reading a different translation. Some interpreters argue that this refers to being freed from marriage and the obligation to maintain it when your partner clearly doesn't want to. Others argue, and this is what I would say, it refers to being free to remarry on the basis that a legitimate divorce makes possible a legitimate remarriage. You're out of that marriage. It no longer stands. It's very difficult, by the way, to settle a question that complex on the basis of just two Greek words, but I do tend to go with that latter view here. I think uh, if a believing spouse, if they have an unbelieving spouse who says, I don't want to do this anymore, I'm leaving, I think that person is set free from that marriage and is free to remarry. Paul's brief treatment here, though, it leaves all kinds of questions unanswered, doesn't it? What if I got divorced illegitimately, but now my ex-spouse has died? Um, what if I was divorced before I was converted? Does that count, right? What about domestic abuse? Do I have to stay and get abused? Which, by the way, no, you don't. But what about domestic abuse? What if I was divorced for bad reasons, but now I have a new partner and we have children together? What do I do now? Am I supposed to go back to that person? No, but the list of scenarios is endless here, and they're often very painful, aren't they? because of the things that we go through in life. And this isn't the place to go into all of them in detail. Nevertheless, we try to give... Um, again, it's, it's a different kind of text, isn't it? That we're, it's, it's so meaty here trying to work through this, but we are moving towards a resolution here. When it comes to all those questions about, you know, can you divorce, remarriage, all these different types of scenarios, there are five principles that I think are probably pretty helpful here. The first two are for those of us who are in or maybe know somebody in complicated situations who is genuinely looking for godly wisdom uh, on our future relationships. Number one, if you're in doubt about what you should do, stay unmarried until you're sure. Uh, this is Paul's counsel to all of us in this chapter, not just those of us who have been divorced. Secondly, um, and this order I'm getting from one of the commentaries I studied, by the way, I like these, these five steps laid out, to submit to local church leadership, right? Your pastors are not perfect, not even close, right? But we have been given to you by God to help with exactly these sorts of situations. Sometimes we'll have an answer, sometimes we won't. But our job is to shepherd you through it. And, and sometimes our distance from the situation uh, might enable us to see the best way forward more clearly than those who are directly involved. So that's another option. Thirdly, distinguish between short-term solutions and long-term commitments. Right? If, if someone uh, is in danger in their home, they should be protected immediately. Immediately. By separating from their partner. That's not a divorce, but 
we got to get that person out of that home. Let them separate. Get to where it's safe. And inform law enforcement, right, whether or not they're been advised or allowed to get divorced and remarried. Get them out of that situation first and foremost. Help them, protect them, get law enforcement involved if you can. Fourthly, um, and this one's kind of a kind of out there, but the, draw wisdom from church history. Uh, draw wisdom from the reformers in particular. The Protestant Reformation of the 16th and 17th centuries produced, believe it or not, all kinds of excellent treatments of this subject because it's always been an issue for Christians and for people, right? And they kind of give you this middle course between the total ban on divorce for any reason that you find like in Roman Catholicism and then the, so there, that's one extreme. And then this kind of permissive soup of whatever you want to do that comes in post-1960s Western culture. Right? So you have those two extremes, including, but anyway, and then you have like um, Thomas Cranmer. He's the one who wrote the marriage vows that we most of us use and used in our weddings, identified five grounds for divorce and remarriage. Adultery, desertion with malice, prolonged absence without news, deadly hostility, and ill treatment. He came to a biblical conclusion that any of those five, that spouse should be able to get out of there, which basically those five amount to the big three A's, right? Adultery, abandonment, and abuse. The point is, there is wisdom to draw from from previous centuries of the church that can really help us in these matters. And then fifthly, it might be helpful at some point for the pastors or the elders to write a paper that makes our church's position as clear as possible. What do we think of all this? How did we get there? Maybe that would be helpful too. At least so um, folks in the congregation would know this is how our church, of which I'm a member, deals with these subjects. Maybe that would be helpful as well. The breakdown of marriages is hard enough to handle without a person having to be completely confused on what happens next. And so the church should be there for folks in this situation. Now, working through all that, right, the central section of the chapter now gives us a rationale both for what comes before it, these instructions on divorce and remarriage, and for what comes after it, those who are currently unmarried. The key principle is obviously important to Paul, Right, so this is where kind of it brings in all of us and, and gives us a, a higher truth that we should use to think through life in general in the context of what he's been talking about and what he's going to talk about. And the key principle that Paul is drawing from all this is obviously important to him because he states it three times in only eight verses. And he only varies the three slightly. Look at verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him in which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Verse 24, so brothers, or brothers and sisters, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. That's the first truth we should be taking from this chapter. All of us. At face value, these look like statements that a person's situation in life shouldn't change the minute they become a Christian. But if, if, you, if you don't know Paul, you just say, oh, okay, so whatever I am when I got saved, I can't ever change. Wherever I live, I can't move. If I have a job, I can't switch jobs. I just, that, that's not what he's after. There are folks that take it that way because they say, right, that's what Paul thought because Christ was going to return at any minute. And so that's how Paul taught things. He gets into that in verses 29 to 31. But 
there are two reasons to suggest that Paul is doing something a little more subtle than that. The first is Paul's own story, number one. Clearly, the transformation in Paul's life when he met the risen Christ wasn't simply spiritual, but related to his physical situation and his circumstances. Paul's work changed dramatically when he got saved. His address changed dramatically when he got saved. His job changed dramatically. So did his relationship. So did his physical condition or location. It would have been very strange if Paul, of all people, were to teach that conversion should make no difference to what we do and where we do it. Of course it should. You're not bound to never change anything in your life. When he says, remain in the state in which you were called, that's not what he's after. The second is found in the examples he gives. The second reason we know he's not saying that is the examples he gives by way of explanation. Take circumcision in verse 18. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. So nobody who is uncircumcised should get circumcised, and nobody who is circumcised should try to reverse it. Paul starts with that example of what he's talking about, partly because the Corinthians would presumably have thought that was obvious, even if the Jewish church members that had been saved thought, wait a minute, circumcision doesn't count for anything in verse 19. But if we know Paul, and particularly Paul's letter to the Galatians, we also know that circumcision was his go-to example of how human beings pursue righteousness in the sight of God and others. So by using circumcision as his example here, Paul is highlighting the fact that none of the things we do, getting married, staying single, getting circumcised, staying uncircumcised, add anything to our standing before God. None of those decisions make us more righteous to God. In that sense, they don't count for anything. So if you're getting married or unmarried or, or staying unmarried to be more righteous, save it. it, it forget it. If you're changing jobs to be more righteous, if you're doing this and that to become more righteous and improve your standing before God, don't do that. Marriage is nothing and singleness is nothing in this regard. Keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Or consider slavery in this culture. If you came to Christ as a slave, don't be concerned about it in verse 21. In a world where slavery was completely normal, and where runaway slaves, runaway slaves were executed, Paul knew that many of his converts would be enslaved for life. And he didn't want them to be troubled by that. After all, he says, slaves are free people in Christ, just as free people are slaves in Christ. Look at verse 22. For he who is called in the Lord is a bondservant, is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. Having said that, by the way, about slavery, the opportunity for freedom may present itself. And if it does, Paul says, take it to the Christians that are slaves. If you can be set free, then be set free by all means. That's in the second part of verse 21. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. That same thinking is extremely helpful when it comes to marriage and singleness. If you're unmarried and you don't want to be, it might be helpful to insert yourself into verses 21 through 24. If the opportunity to be married presents itself, you should take it. If it doesn't, 
don't let it trouble you. The person who is single at conversion is married to the Lord. It's, it's, it's kind of sad what we've done to, to make single people think that like maybe they're not as faithful as they need to be. Maybe they're missing out on something. Maybe, beloved, it, it's, that's just where they are in the Lord. We, they don't need to feel any less or like disadvantaged. We, we, we do harm when we make people think that way. It's, it's okay to be what you are when you're not sinning. It's, it's okay. The person who is single at conversion is married to the Lord. Right? And whether you get married or not, you can't think of yourself as owned by anyone except Christ. That's verse 23. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Now he comes to singleness in verses 25 to 40. When it comes to singleness, these verses address single women and single men. We're once again dealing with a subject that Jesus did not address in his earthly ministry. Paul can't appeal to any quotation from the gospel, but what he can do is in verse 25. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. They're still single people. The judgment is clear. It's been expounded at some length in the previous section, verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. It's almost embarrassingly, embarrassingly straightforward here. His advice, verse 27. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. If you're engaged, don't try to get out of it. If you're not, don't try and get married. Now again, marriage is certainly not sinful, and Paul is very clear about that. But he's also aware that marriage presents all sorts of difficulties in this life, which in his view are best avoided. Right? That's Scripture. Verse 28. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. When my beloved said yes to me, when I asked her to marry me, my Christie, right? We've been married for, what, 21 years now? 20, 21? She got all my liabilities for the rest of her life. Right? So, everything bad about me, Christy has to live with it. Right? So, that's kind of what Paul is, and all the way that the life of a pastor, the decisions you have to make as a pastor, they will affect my wife and children, sometimes negatively. Right? And so, they get all that because she's married to me. And those are worldly troubles, and that's not always great to have to deal with. And Paul is recognizing that here. He's calling that out. And then there, 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 there's those that will argue that there were particular circumstances in Corinth which make this true only for them. A famine, a wave of persecution, some other social upheaval. So that's why he's saying that to them. They shouldn't get seek a different station in Corinth. But uh, he says, in view of the present distress in verse 26. But I think we get closer to Paul's meaning if we understand the word anonke there, not, not as a distress, which implies an intense short-term problem, yes, but rather as a present necessity or constraint. What I mean is, Paul's advice to remain as you are is not based on an unusually terrible situation at that time, but simply on the challenges of life in a fallen world. There will be trouble. That's certainly how he explains himself in this next sentence. Look at verse 29. 
This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have lives live as though they had none. Again, that would take some unpacking, wouldn't it? But Paul is well known and occasionally ridiculed for living his life in anticipation of the return of Christ, just as Jesus told the disciples to. Again, following Jesus is usually way more radical than we're willing to deal with. But Paul could hardly look less like some cult member or crazy survivalist. That's not what he's advocating. He does not respond to the fact that it's hard to live in the world and the world is passing away. He does not respond by hoarding things or stockpiling supplies or moving to Israel or building underground bunkers. That's not what he does. He simply urges that people not hold on too tightly to the things of this world. Marriage in verse 29. The emotional ups and downs of circumstances and purchases and possessions in 30 and 31. Look there. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as those as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. None of those things, joys, pains, buying things, having things, not having them, none of them are bad in themselves. Being married, not being married. But all of them can trick us into thinking we'll have them forever. We won't have them forever. Nothing we own will we have forever. Nothing. There is not a thing you and I can do to change that. No matter how tightly you hold on to it, you will lose it. You will lose it. It will end. Your possession of it will end. And we need to live accordingly, Paul says. For the present form of this world is passing away in verse 31. That, in a nutshell, is Paul's case for singleness based on the future. In the next paragraph, he makes a different argument, advocating singleness on the basis of what we could call focus. Your freedom to focus more. Unmarried people, Paul explains, can be exclusively devoted to what the Lord wants them to do in a way that a married person can't. In verse 32, and then I'll skip down to 34. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. Verse 34, and his interests are divided. Uh, And the unmarried are betrothed. Actually, 33, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. Unmarried people can be uniquely single-minded. Think about this. If if God calls them to a dangerous or possibly life-threatening situation, or mission, as happened to Paul himself, they can drop everything and go. But married people, rightly, understandably, are anxious about worldly things in that they have to think about their spouses and their children. Well, 33, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. So if our goal is undivided devotion to the Lord, there in verse 35, then remaining single is clearly preferable to marriage. These are compelling reasons. But alongside a commitment to the disciples' future and the disciples' focus here, because we get tempted to run with things when we hear things like that, then you should stay single. That's for you to decide. Nobody else. Okay? You should get married. That's for you to decide. Nobody else. 
right alongside a commitment to a disciple's future, right? Because the world is passing away, right alongside a commitment to the disciples' focus, because if you're single, you can focus more on the Lord. Paul insists, though, on the disciples' freedom. Their liberty of conscience when it comes to any decision that isn't sinful. There are few decisions in life that will prompt such soul-searching as the decision to get married. Hopefully. right? Few questions generate the search for God-given signs or divine confirmation like that of whether so-and-so is the one. Right? Paul, however, is cheerfully relaxed about the whole thing, which again is unsettling to us. Getting married to your fiancé isn't sinful. If you want to get married, you should in verse 36. Period. On the other hand, if you resolve not to get married, that's the right decision too in verse 37. Paul, true to form, thinks that marriage is good, but singleness is even better in verse 38. That doesn't threaten those of us who are married. It's just a statement of fact. I was not given the gift of singleness. I don't, my wife is everything to me. I'll admit it very freely. I I can't envision my life without her. I can't. And I know that God is faithful and I would be okay. But I don't want a life without my wife. Okay? Paul, true to form, thinks that marriage is good, but singleness is even better in verse 38. And that people are happier if they stay as they are in verse 40. But Paul cares more about Christian freedom than he does about believers remaining single, even though he thinks that's better. A follower of Jesus has the freedom to marry whomever they like, whether they're single in verse 36 or widowed in verse 39. The only requirement is that their chosen partner must also belong to the Lord. Okay, now, we're almost done. Okay, I have one, one more paragraph here, right there, and we're done. Okay? We had to work through all of that. In the center of this section, in verses 17 to 24, okay, Paul declares that a person should lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Now he says that, again, in the immediate context of marriage, singleness, divorce, and remarriage, but he's also addressing life in general for believers, no matter what station they're in. And that's where this text becomes relevant for all of us. Our whole lives are sacred to God. Married, single, janitor, accountant, lawyer, fast food worker, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Our marriages, our singleness, our children, our careers, our retirements, these are our vocations, if you will. They're our calling, where we are in life. That's been given to us by God, the state we're in right now. So if you wanted to stay as you are, you're fine. If you wanted to move into something else that isn't sin, you're fine. Don't put unnecessary pressure on yourself when you're free in Christ. We don't need to live with the constant angst that we're not doing enough, that the life we have isn't maybe godly enough. I mean, how can... You're you're a preacher. You get to your whole life is church and Christianity. I work at a restaurant. We love it. It, it. it doesn't matter. Like I'm not closer to God as a pastor than you are as a waitress or a nurse or a surgeon or a banker. Like those are man-made categories between sacred and secular. Jesus owns the whole world. He owns the whole world. 
It's all His space. Don't live with this angst. I'm not not doing enough. I should be somewhere else. I should be doing different things. Unless we're living in unrepentant sin, we are fine right where we are. Right where God has us. Again, it doesn't mean you can't seek other things. What it does mean is don't be where you are and think you're not, like you're, you're failing or you're not doing good enough or God is holding you back from something because you haven't learned some lesson. Just don't do that to yourself. We can glorify and honor and live for God as a mom or dad in Moundsville, working hard to put food on the table or as a missionary in North Korea. It, it doesn't matter. God is Lord of all and in all and is pleased to receive all the daily sacrifices of obedience of our lives as a pleasing aroma to Him. If, if, if we don't have questions about divorce and remarriage and all that, that or singleness, or that, that's totally fine. What we need to take from this text is this. Christians are free when there's no command on how to act. Not you're, you, Again, you can't choose, well, you can't choose sin. No. But that's just the, the, the point. If, when you're not choosing sin, you're free to make your choice in the Lord. That's number one, when there's not a command. Now, we should seek the wisdom of Scripture. That's precisely what Paul is doing. I don't have a command from Christ, but as the one commissioned to teach the Word of God to you, here's what I think, and we should probably listen to Paul. Right, listen to Paul before you listen to me, or anyone else for that matter, when it comes to what's in the Scripture. Secondly, first you're free when there's no command. Secondly, so be content in the life that you have, in the life that you choose. Christ has reconciled us to God. We're safe. Our sins are forgiven. We have been washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God in 611. It is finished for you. Jesus has you right where you are, meaning He has His loving hands and arms around you wherever you are. He loves you. We glorify God when we faithfully live the lives He has given to us, no matter what they are, in hope and for His glory. And living for God's glory is a matter of being content with the lives we've been given. It's not like I can't live for the glory of God unless I'm a missionary. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. I'm just a mom. I just work at the plant. I'm just a coal miner. I'm just a lawyer. I'm just... Living for God's glory is a matter of being content with the lives we've been given. He is with us in the great things and He is with us in the mundane, which is good because the mundane is where most of us live. For He is Lord of all. He is Lord of all.